0: Hi, I'm Michael Rosenblum, host of Collective Wisdom, the podcast where we woo world-class founders to get them to share sexy insights about the world of startups. I'm a venture capitalist with Founder Collective. We're an early-stage VC firm that has invested in companies like Uber, BuzzFeed, PillPack, SeatGeek, and more. Today, we're going to talk to Sam Yeagan, the CEO of the Newly Public Match Group. Match is a dating conglomerate that combines Match, OkCupid, Tinder, and plenty of fish under one banner. The company just went public, raising over $400 million on the back of over a billion Tinder swipes. In this episode, we'll learn how to handle negative PR better than a bad breakup, and how to learn to love customers that leave you—hint, they're going to be coming back—and why starting a dating startup might be harder than, well, dating itself. Sam, thanks so much for coming on. This is a real honor. Hey, Micah. Thanks for having me. Um, So the last few days have been a little crazy for you. Uh, You've— since the last time I saw you, you've taken a company public.
1: Something I never expected to do, <laughs> uh, but I guess every entrepreneur's dream in some way.
0: Well, I want to hear more about it. I, but can we start with just what have the last like forty-eight or seventy-two hours been like for you?
1: Um, it has been uh, first and foremost just a lot of learning. Um, you know, I think it's uh, an IPO is something that uh, is obviously very high stakes, but something that um, you know most people doing it haven't done before. Uh, I have the fortune. Um, here at Match to be supported by, uh, obviously, everyone at IAC and and our chairman, Greg Blatt, um, who did most of the heavy lifting on the, uh, and our CFO, Gary Swidler, who did a lot of the heavy lifting on the actual um, roadshow. But, you know, setting the price of the IPO, watching it trade, um, and just thinking about all the dynamics from investor relations to employee morale um, and all the, uh, and and the PR uh, impact of it, um, were all things that I don't think I'd fully internalized before um, sort of it came right to the brink. So you
0: were out flying around talking to investors, I imagine, for the last couple of weeks. There were a
1: lot of meetings, um, everything from, um, you know, we raised some debt, we raised, um, we issued some bonds. We, of course, uh, uh, priced the IPO. So we did a bunch of meetings. Um, uh, It turns out that, you know, I think something I hadn't really thought of, but is obvious in retrospect, which is, you know, an IPO is really just a fundraise. And I thought back to, all the fundraising I've done, you know, as a startup CEO and all the fundraising I've advised and the deck, you know, the deck to raise, the deck to do an IPO is not so different from the deck to raise probably a series B. It's probably pretty different from a C or an A deck where it's all, hey, here's what we're going to do. But, you know, by the time you're a series B, you've, you know, you've done a lot. Um, You can look pretty, um, you can look with some degree of confidence into the next 12 months and you have to convince someone that you're, you know, what your company's worth and that it's worth investing in. And, and that was really what we were doing, um, from an IPO perspective. So in many ways, you know, the experience of fundraising for, a, for, um, you know, venture capital, I think was pretty useful in, in thinking about approaching an IPO.
0: But I imagine the, or I'm picturing cause I've never been there, but the investor set is a little bit different. These are older white men, I imagine by and large, <laughs> not to stereotype, but they're wall streeters. They're not in the dating segment. Sure. Uh, you know, Do they get it? Do they understand your business? Oh, for sure.
1: Yeah. I think, um, you know, I think in our case in particular, the fact that we had been uh, public through IAC already, people had already been following the stock, and I think in—or following the business, I guess. And in particular, I think in our case, um, dating is— Because it's a product that so many people use and so many people are familiar with, obviously, um, with brands like Match and Tinder and OkCupid in the portfolio, uh, people know what it is. People have an an, an, sort of intrinsic, inherent understanding of the product. So um, it's not like something you have to understand. um, You know, you have to really um, understand some new user experience or some new sort of uh, consumer behavior. It's dating, and people fundamentally get that. So uh,
0: going back to this morning, you were at the exchange. We were. And uh, you were up there.
1: And there is—is is there a big bell? Do you ring it? What's uh, that so, like? at, so at NASDAQ, there's a button. Okay. Uh, and it, there, there's a there's a uh, I guess like a monitor that's in the in the podium, and uh, you hit the button. And was that uh, was it a moment of
0: great joy? Great? Uh, did did it sort of? I, I think of... it was a
1: little bit surreal more than anything to be up there. Um, uh, both because it's a little bit more of a production than I'm used to. You know, they have you clap and do all these things. Um, but also, um, you know, it, it was a sort of, a, a, maybe a graduation is really kind of the, the feeling where um, it is both a, a commencement, I guess. It is both sort of a, a, a an indication or a milestone, a recognition of how far you've come, but then also realizing that tomorrow you got to come to work and, you know, the investors invest in us because they expect... You know us to do a lot of great things going forward, and you realize, and again, not unlike raising a you yeah. know, a, sort of back around. to the grind. I, yeah, you know. you know you you know you you close your Series A, and you're like sweet, and you go have a nice dinner, and then you're like okay, crap, you know, <laughs> right. you know what, what did I tell my investors I'm going to do? And then you got to go do it. And so, um, but it was a nice celebration. Um, I think the team was excited, um, and uh, back to work.
0: Sam, if you'll indulge me, I'd love to go back a little bit to your Harvard dorm, sure, uh, where this all got started.
1: So funny. Um,
0: you were an entrepreneur from really those days, right? And uh, I know a little bit about the story, but I'd love to hear a little more about that first company.
1: This was back in 1999, where um, uh, and and I, and I guess I don't really know what um, Harvard in general, Harvard in particular, or schools in general now what their attitude is towards startups, but I can tell you. Um, that we started uh, spark notes uh, and i should say co-founded with um, with max crone uh, and chris coin who are two phenomenal uh, entrepreneurs um uh you know we were in the shadows um you, you know it was you know everyone's very worried about resources are using our computing resources are using our systems and there's all this ip you know we're gonna you know is it an independent are you is it something that you know the school would own so I should just it was a totally different world back then um, just from a sort of how visible we wanted to be and how visible we could be and the product was note-taking in classes right I uh, know it was actually just like Cliff's notes okay I think Cliffs notes for the internet so like this Got is it. back in the 90s where you could have like the obvious ideas hadn't been done yet so um, you know we looked around and we said oh no one's doing there's no way to get a free online study guide that was our tagline free online study guides um, and there was no way to do that and so it turns out that we were like oh well Cliffs notes, uh, the Cliffs Notes type product is the perfect product to put online because it's right once, published a zillion times. Right. And, you know, uh, Romeo and Juliet doesn't change very often. Um, and so once you've got the Spark Note up, you didn't really need to to, to refresh it. So it was really great from that perspective. Um, but yeah, we started the company and I, I vividly remember, um, you know, one of my really good friends looking at me and just thinking I was crazy to start a company. She's like, she was like, this isn't going to work. You know, why don't you go get a real job? Um, and it was certainly not a glamorous thing. It was something that was, I think, viewed as, kind of crazy.
0: And, um, so you, you start working on this in your dorm and then what happened post-graduation?
1: Um, and again, it's, you know, for the entrepreneurs who, uh, you know, weren't maybe even, I guess everyone was born in the nineties, but for people who don't remember the nineties, it was just, um, especially the late nineties, it was so, it was such a different time. We started the company in March, um, and we had a term sheet to sell the company, um, signed on Thanksgiving. Um, so, I mean, it just went, it was, Eight months. This this was after graduation. Yeah, Thanksgiving. Well, we, we started the March so mar- before March of, our of your year. senior year, and by I literally remember it was Thanksgiving Day that we sort of we signed our. So term well, sheet. while everybody else is starting their job on Wall Street, right? Or consulting. We, we were you, you, you had sold your company. Um, we didn't, well done. We didn't actually close. Uh, we didn't close till the, the following February. Um, it took us a few months to get the documents done, but um, but yeah, within a year of starting the company, we had sold it, um, and you know I, I'm a I'm a anyone you know who I've talked to about this before. Um, you know, I've, we've gotten so lucky. I've gotten so lucky in my life. Um, and I, I, really think you have to sort of position yourself to get lucky. You have to get lucky. Then you have to execute on the luck. That's you right. You know, and you know, we sold six weeks before the market crashed. And, um, I remember one of my good friend, one of my, one of my good friends, um, you know, was sort of contemplating the same time we sold, he was contemplating between a great expense, you know, very high valuation exit opportunity he get and the opportunity to raise more capital. And he took the capital and never ended up getting out, you know, and so it was kind of dumb luck in many ways. Um, but you know, you're 23 years old. And someone offers you 30 million dollars for eight months of work, How, sort of a no-brainer. Sort of a no-brainer. Although you know, you look at you know lots of other, you know, Zuckerberg passed on the billion for Facebook. I was like, I don't know, I take the billion. You know, <laughs> right. and it sh- shows what I know. So, uh, but look, we were very lucky to get out when we did, and um, it was it really w- was a good opportunity. You know, it was just a good foundation for for. You know what we ended up doing after that, and you sold to Barnes and Noble, correct? We actually the first time um, sold to a company called iTurf, which was in this um, uh, this dot com company that probably never should have existed, and ended up losing ninety five percent of its market cap uh, right after we sold the company to them. And then um, we, together with iTurf, sold SparkNotes um, to Barnes and Noble. And probably the biggest uh, business mistake of my life was we had the chance to buy it back from um, from iTurf for a nickel on the dollar. Um, And we said no. Um, And, you know, in retrospect, it was just so dumb because to sell your company and then to buy it back for 5% of what you sold it for is amazing because then you've got your company back and you could go do something else with it. But What uh, was the psychology
0: there? Did you feel like you were done in that space? You didn't want to keep going? Or I
1: I think if I'm being honest, I think we were scared um, and probably, I think three things. I think we were scared. I think we lacked vision because now this is post- Post-crash, right, Um, and so, I I mean, we didn't think the internet was over, but I think we, I think now with perspective, I'd be like, oh, great, you buy low, sell high kind of thing, and so you should, and then third is we would have had to fire a lot of people, and I think, you know, I was, not just I, my partners and I, I think we were just young and naive, and I think, like, that just seemed painful and hard, and so I think we just said the easy thing to do is to just, you know, go ahead and sell the company to Barnes Noble um, and we went along with it again. Uh, but in retrospect, um, you know, when I rank my sort of 10 biggest business uh, mistakes, that's right up there because um, having that brand and that user base would have been the perfect springboard to just launch. We could have just launched businesses off of that um, basically forever.
0: You got me thinking about your ten biggest mistakes list. I need you to hear what number my, one that, that, is. That, un- that, 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 my, my fear in saying that was <laughs> that you I don't. I don't have the list. Okay. The list uh, although, a- although I should make it um, because <laughs> we probably all should. We.
1: I think. Yeah, I actually do want to do that um, and just post it on my wall because I think you know. Um, It's not the mistake itself. It's the remembering that you need perspective and remembering not to be scared and to do the hard thing. Like, those are the learnings from that mistake, right? It's not the mistake itself.
0: Well, in every situation, the context is a little different, which is sometimes why it's hard to apply that lesson. It's why they say you make new mistakes. Try to make brand new mistakes.
1: I've done done plenty of that.
0: So how did, um, you know, a uh, note-taking product uh, get you into uh, sort of the dating world? Tell tell us about that sort of transition into um, OkCupid.
1: Yeah, so we were... um, We had done a side project while we were at SparkNotes called SparkMatch. So we were always interested in dating. I think um, it was... Lots of entrepreneurs enter the dating category because it's something that everyone experiences. Everyone dates almost sort of... um, Uh, genetically you're that's part of what we do as humans and so i think everyone has felt the pain and the inefficiency of dating and so everyone feels like they have a solution um and so we did that at spark match and when we sold to barnes and noble they were like we want nothing to do with dating so we just shut that down always kind of knowing we wanted to get back into it um i um
0: maybe barnes and noble should have kept with it it seems like that might have been a better business might have
1: been a better business than uh, than where they are now um but um you know you look at uh um, I actually did one business in between um, uh, Sparknotes and, uh, and OkCupid, which is called eDonkey, which was this uh, peer-to-peer file sharing network. Um, and then after I wrapped up uh, eDonkey, I got back together with my Sparknotes co-founders and uh, Christian Rudder, who was our first employee at, at Sparknotes. Um, and then we all decided, you know what? That dating thing was, was pretty interesting um, that we did before. Um, and the dating world at that time... Was really eHarmony Match and, and Yahoo. And they all had kind of the same um, business model approach to the market. The products were, were somewhat um, uh, similar. And so we thought we could come at it with a pretty different product. A product, you know, we're all math majors. All four of us who started OKCupid are, are math majors. And so, you know, we didn't really know anything about dating per se. None of us were psychologists or whatever, but we said dating is a numbers game. And fundamentally, if you um, if you have enough data and you and you have a big enough pool, you're going to be able to match people up the best. Um, and so that was kind of our approach: was that we could be free, um, we could be we could have a more effective matching algorithm, and we could just from an editorial perspective um, not take ourselves too seriously. That's why it's called OK Cupid and not Great Cupid or Awesome Cupid. It's just OK Cupid, and that was a very disarming approach. We wanted to be funny, not take ourselves too seriously, um, and sort of that was the combination. Um, you know that we went to market with
0: it's interesting i didn't know that you were a harvard math major it makes me think that uh there's some irony you think of dating as sort of a branding exercise and you know all about that soft stuff and you guys really approach it from a math standpoint um how did you get the branding and the voice piece because that's still very important right from an acquisition standpoint to resonate here you guys are you know numbers guys um did you bring someone along who kind of had a kind of a branding sort of point of view
1: or Uh, my, my partner, uh, Chris, uh, coin, who was our head of product and, uh, and Christian, who was uh, kind of our creative director who ended up writing the blog that really brought us, uh, brought us to, to so much fame. Um, you know, they, they were the ones who were really driving that, that voice and that editorial, but even again, from the name, you can tell what we're trying to accomplish. Um, and, uh, you know, just, just throughout it, I think, it, it was because you have the you had the other guys out there who were so serious about their algorithms, it just gave us something to push off of. And, you know, while other people had these psychologists out on TV doing, it was just easy chemistry dot Chemistry.com. Whether it was chemistry yeah. or eHarmony, e-harmony, with, e-harmony yeah. with Dr. Warren and um, Dr. Phil was getting involved with Match at the time. And, you know, they were all so serious about it that it just made it really easy for us to just kind of like take the, you know, to push off it, as I like to say, just kind of be at the other end of the spectrum. And um, we were mm-hmm. the alternative. Really, from the beginning, we were the alternative to the established dating brands. And uh, you were really ahead of your time.
0: You know, you talk about this blog post. You were really doing content marketing before it was a thing, before it was sort of— And it sounds like, did you sort of accidentally land there? Or was was it a bit deliberate to kind of effuse this, look, we don't have doctors on staff and psychologists. It's actually— um, much more mainstream, much more WYSIWYG, yeah.
1: you know. The 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 content marketing, and you know, I think we were doing big data before big data was a thing and we were doing content marketing before content marketing was a thing. Um, you know, we we always knew, you know, again, we're, we're math guys, and so we, we said, look, the data will be really interesting for matching. That was our prime, you know, we knew the data would have three Value, would, would be valuable in three ways. First, it would first, most importantly, it would drive the best matches, right? So I would be able to match you with with your best match in the pool based on data. Number two it would drive advertising revenue, obviously, um, and then third was that there would be PR value. And our first crack at that was we hired a PR firm, and each week we would come up with a nugget. My favorite nugget that I remember off the top of my head was you know gas prices were going up, and um, uh, we were able to quantify that every. Uh, Every dime that gas prices go up, people narrow their search radius, hmm. which to me was a fascinating result that that's people actually narrow search radiuses when gas prices go up. Um, and so I remember like, I emailed the PR firm, and I got on the phone with them, and I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And they were like, this is amazing. And so they called 100 reporters that week, and literally every reporter was like, that's amazing. I'm not writing a story on gas prices. Sorry. You know, so so people and they said call me call me next time. And so we, we said okay fine no problem. So the next week we did a similarly interesting stat, called all the reporters, really interested, but not writing a story on that today. So we were like okay, and we did that for like six months. Uh, <laughs> probably should have learned more quickly, but we did that for six months. And we got some articles, but like nothing groundbreaking. And so then that's when you know Chris and Christian were like, well, why don't we just write a blog, like like disintermediate the reporter basically. We have all these
0: really interesting data, uh, data, yeah. but we should be telling this story. We're just going to tell the story ourselves. The, That's the right. Why do we need the journalist to like do it? And so, right.
1: um, and so we just started writing these blogs and, um, these blog posts and, you know, there were really kind of three, three parts. You need the interesting insight the, or our formula was interesting insight, uh, plus infographic plus humor. And Christian is really one of the funniest, uh, people. He wrote a book called, uh, Dataclism dataclysm, uh, that came out recently was a New York times bestseller. Um, but, um, We combined those. We Christian and Chris combined those three things into these phenomenal blog posts, um, and basically, in many ways, put OkCupid on the map after having been around for six years and growing, but never a rocket ship, never like Tinder, like Tinder is today. Um, You know, growing kind of linearly um, and and methodically and deliberately. um, But it was it was the blog that put us on the map uh, in sort of end of 2009, beginning of two thousand ten.
0: So I, talking about PR for a second, you, you used it really successfully, have continue to use it. Um, but, you know, and I think you've experienced this, it can be your best friend or your worst nightmare. Sure. I, PR can work against you uh, in many ways. Um, ha, ha, and, and Tinder's come under fire in the press and others have. How, as a CEO, do you handle that? Uh, you can't be in every press release. You can't read every blog. I, right. At least I don't think you do. Right. Um, you know, in the early days, you
1: can. Um, how do you manage that? It's interesting how um, the approach to PR changes. I think when you're a startup, um, you know, we always had the view that really, um, all press is good press as long as they spell the name right, you (laughs) know? Um, and, um, and whether it was, you know, even if, even if, um, uh, people were complaining about OkCupid or if people were saying, oh, uh, people were writing about their bad experiences on OkCupid. Um, obviously there's a point. I mean, if someone's you know, God forbid, something terrible happens to someone that's bad. Um, but you're the little um, guy; you don't have much to the, lose. You're the little guy, and you know, uh, the, the odds are that somebody reading the post or, or reading the stories is likely to have you know learned about OKCupid and they never heard about it before. So I think there's a point when you're growing where you'll more or less take anything, um, and then it ch- and then it flips, and then you realize that um, it's just like whether you have more to gain or more to lose, I guess. And um, you know, at at some point it changes. I think. And it also changes based on, you know, the idiosyncrasy of the brand and what the brands, um, like I think OkCupid okay is, even to this day, even though it's, it's a household name in many ways, um, I think it can sustain a lot because it has generally gotten positive press and doesn't have a lot of um, uh, deficiencies in the brand that it's really sensitive to. Whereas there, I think there are other brands that have already gone through a lot and, and they might be more susceptible to sort of a snowballing effect when, you know, when negative press comes out. So, given that you've
0: got these different brands under the Match umbrella, do you almost have to apply a different sort of PR, marketing, management hat for each of the different brands? I mean, do you feel like okay, now I got to put on my OK Cupid in this meeting, I got to think with my OK Cupid hat. In that meeting, I got to think with my
1: Tinder hat. We we uh, one of the things that I think we've done well at Match um, is when we and you know in in the. In the time that I've been uh, CEO, we've acquired a number of companies, including uh, several that are that were still founder, uh, founder-led at the time, um, whether it's this company called Two in Belgium or a company called Pears, uh, Eureka in Japan, or recently uh, Plenty of Fish um, out, of Can- out of Vancouver. Um, and we, uh, we, we let them run pretty autonomously. Um, because we understand, and and when Match bought OkCupid, they they let OkCupid run pretty autonomously. And so, um, you know, whether it's PR or anything else, really, most of that is managed by the person running the business. And so when I'm there um, working with them, I definitely have to change hats all the time, to use your analogy. And when I'm talking to the person who runs OkCupid or the person who runs um uh, Tinder or whatever, I definitely have to sort of change mindsets and say, okay, well, what are the specific challenges of this business, opportunities of this business, priorities, um, and they vary. Uh, they vary across the globe uh, as you know, we're an international business. They vary across stage of businesses, um, and even throughout the year, you know, what people are focusing on changes. So that's one of the most interesting things about um, about you know going from a, a one brand business when we were just a startup to um, you know the role that I've had for the last three years at Matches thinking about different problems all the time and having to sort of uh, jump, sort of context switch uh, really throughout the day.
0: One of the big differences I observed, you know, I saw my second company to 3M, yeah. and um, you know, I found that senior management was really more like portfolio managers than business managers, meaning um, it was really about very macro things. Do we have the right brands? Do we have the right assets? Do we have the right distributors? Um, and really just putting systems in place so that people could execute on the individual business lines but not getting involved at that level. I mean, is that where things are headed or, or how things have evolved for you, where it's sort of more, you know, I think a P&G is sort of the classic example. Obviously, that's a huge company, sure. but lots of brands. Um, and and I imagine, you know, um, it really is a portfolio exercise and not, uh, you know, the CEO is not wading into the details of the Tide packaging.
1: I, I think, you know, each CEO of a business is going to bring their own... Um, Uh, they're an approach to how they're going to manage it. And, um, you know, I think the way I've, I'm an operator at heart. Uh, I have a very hard time um, thinking about a business problem when I haven't, when I don't really understand it. So probably, probably to a fault, I think I, it's not that I micromanage, it's just that I do like to get more into the weeds than I think most, most other other CEOs, if they had my job, would. Um, I, and I think it's because, you know, as, a, as I built OkCupid okay with my, with my co-founders, we were in the weeds every day, right? That is all you are doing as an entrepreneur, right? right? So, um, you know, be able to, you know, I don't think I could do a good job running match if I just decided to, you know, sort of come all the way up to the top and, and just say, oh, as long as I've got the right people running the businesses and the right resources allocated to them, I can sort of go home at night. Um, that's just not the way I work. And, um, so, I'm probably more in the weeds than, than most CEOs would be, but, you know, I think when, when, when you go from managing 30 people, which was OkCupid to now managing well over a thousand employees, uh, coworkers at, at match, um, you know, you have to decide, well, what are the things I'm going to spend time on and what are the things I'm going to delegate and let other people spend time on. Um, and for me, I, I still like to talk to the people running the businesses, understand the product roadmaps deeply, um, understand the priorities and, and the business strategy and, um, you know fortunately matches although it's a it's a big company and, and now a public company um, it is in many ways um, you know still small enough where I can still you know talk to the business leaders and really understand it
0: I'm curious how the domain that you operate in um, affects all this meaning uh, it, it at, at the heart it's a dating company which I think maybe stereotypically uh, correct me if I'm wrong really skews to a younger demographic mm-hmm. um, although I know there are different segments and different products that you guys have for for people of different ages but you like me and everyone else have aged and, uh, you're not dating. I know your wife nope. and you have kids. And, um, but when you started, you were in co- or you were you know post-college, but, uh, much younger. How is that, you know, how has your, um, where you are in life impacted how you think about the business and do you feel like you can stay relevant, uh, you,
1: you know, as you get further and further from the target demo? Sure. So, um, you're, you're, you're half right. Um, Dating actually, um, doesn't really skew younger. Um, and in fact, until Tinder, um, until it it was really Tinder that brought the young audience into dating, I would say pre Tinder, the under 25 crowd really Hmm. wasn't, um, online at nearly the same penetration as, um, uh, as older users now with Tinder, you know, that's really sort of become really an 18 to 80 category. Um, but being married, regardless of the age demographic, being married, of course, takes you out of the single demographic. Um, And so um, I actually remember some, um, there was some article, it must have been a a slow news day, but there was some article that said, uh, you know, online dating King Samyagin, never been on an online date. And I was like, that's worth writing an article about? Like, why (laughs) why, why is that a story? Um, But it's true, like, you know, and the last time I went on a first date was, you know, a long time ago. I've been married for 12 years. Um, But... That doesn't that doesn't mean um, that you can't understand the business in the same way that you know I have investors who invested in OkCupid from the beginning. We have investors who have invested in our IPO who aren't single. Um, you can be a vegetarian and work for McDonald's. Like there are, I, I don't think you have to you know be um, the most avid consumer um, of your product in order to understand the product. Um, now that said. Um, we certainly have, you know, if we didn't have a, any single people who worked for us, that would probably be a problem. Um, and, and, you know, dating is such a conversation topic that I, I sort of ask all my friends and anyone, like if I'm at the airport and I start up a conversation, I'll end up asking someone about their love life and their dating and, and, you know, what's working, what's not working. So I think there are lots of other ways to do it. Of course, you've got to stay connected to the market and to your customer, but um, I don't know that it has to be via um, using the product.
0: So, uh, we're investors, as you know, and um, we've invested in a couple dating companies over the years. How about We, which was acquired by IC and um, Igniter Step Out? And uh, one of the classic. Also acquired by us? Also acquired by you guys. One of the classic quips that investors share to each other and, frankly, to prospective companies is one of the hard parts of investing in dating is your best customers leave you and you have this kind of eternal churn problem. Um, How do you. You've obviously. Built a massive business, but, 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 isn't that point still relevant? And how how do you think about that?
1: I think in our category, the churn question is uh, probably the one of the biggest misconceptions about the business. Um, it is often uh, the first, uh, one of the first sort of objections we get uh, from uh, investors or just people who are thinking about the category, and it's because unlike churn in other categories, um, where perhaps once you've um, succeeded in the product, you've sort of um, succeeded for that product permanently. Um, if you think about it, the, aver- the average adult probably has 10 relationships in their life before they end up in a marriage. And by the way, half of marriages end up in divorce. So if you think about it, um, what that means is um, when someone leaves OkCupid or Match or whatever because they have found someone to date, there's at least... I call it a 90% chance that that relationship is going to end, right? That doesn't mean we did something wrong as the dating product. That doesn't mean they did something wrong. It just means that that's life, which is, you know, you date people and the relationships aren't necessarily forever. And so as you think through that thought process, okay, I meet someone on OkCupid. It goes great. Eight months later, we decide to break up. What is th- Where is that person going to go for their next boyfriend or girlfriend? Probably back to OkCupid because, hey, I just got a six-month relationship out of it. That's pretty good. Or maybe they'll say, you know what? That didn't work. I'm going to try a different dating product. I'm going to try Tinder. I'm going to try Match. Um, so in the majority of cases, people leave one of our products and then come back to the category. And in the, let's say, one in ten chance where that that relationship from Match leads to happy ever after, um, well, then we have not churn. We have advocates. We have people who at their wedding are going to stand up and say, hey, we met on OkCupid or Match, and they're going to tell their friends. And when their friend, when they have single friends who are complaining, oh, I wish I had a girlfriend, they're going to say, why don't you go to Match? That's where I met my husband. And so, uh, you know, it's 90% of the time you get the customer back, 10% of the time all you need is those two people to get two people to come join your maybe, product. Maybe
0: in that 10% of the time you should have like a 10% placement fee where exactly. yeah, 10% of the gifts given at the wedding will you know, go to Match. You know, or I've, often,
1: I've often thought that like the – if you if you could get the if you could get the tracking right, I would love to. You know, the business model where you just say, "Look, if you get married, give us five thousand bucks." Right. It's sort of how
0: recruiting because, works, right? Sure. Like because most play-
1: people, if you if you ask if you ask them, especially someone in their thirties who's you know, is maybe it thinking, worth it? Of course. Would you pay five question, grand to get married? You know, worth a lot of people would. You know, right. And and you see people sign up for these like offline dating products that have a whatever. Um, so if it was risk free, five grand if you get married, of course that's challenged on a bunch of on a bunch of just the logistics of enforcing that would be very hard. But I've often thought that that would be a you know a really intriguing. Way there may to be business. some insurance products you could build oh, yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. Get a little bit. Totally.
0: <laughs> Did, um, just one more question about um, this 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 idea, as you say, it's sort of misunderstood about churn. Um, but as you calculate lifetime value of a customer, do you have to then model in? the probability that the relationship doesn't work out and them coming back. I mean, is that all part and, of that and, and we calculation?
1: Do, we do. In fact, um, at match, uh, at any given time, if you look at our subscriber base at match, um, about, uh, about, about half of them uh, are in their first, uh, payment relationship with us. And about, about half have been in a payment relationship with us, had a break in the payment relationship and then are in there uh, in, in a subsequent payment relationship with us. Um, and so we model that in, actually, um, that, that's a huge part of what our finance team does is to understand, okay, um, of course, not at the user level, but at the cohort level or at the segment level, um, who are the likely resubscribers um, and, and who are not? And that's a uh, that's a big part of our business. So um,
0: Tinder gets a lot of press, and and certainly a lot of people are using it. Um, as an investor, I think of Tinder as having really innovated on a UX Um But I know there's a lot to it, and I'm curious kind of how you frame. I mean, you you were in the space long before the Tinder guys. um, And as you alluded to earlier, the growth has been insane. Um, When you kind of look at it, how do you assess what they've done so well, what the team has done so well, what you've all done so well uh, that's led to that rise?
1: And where does UX fit into that? Tinder got a lot of things right. Um, the UX of course is what they, they get the most credit for the swipe uh, swipe left swipe right I think that was um, that was that was brilliant um, and really uh, hit sort of perfect timing on that right the, the you know the mobile adoption was just in the right place and people were sort of really looking for for that product that could come and and, and, and be designed for that device uh, which of course Tinder was um, I think some of the things that people don't appreciate as much about Tinder um, that you know I think sort of as an insider, I appreciate, um, certainly one is, you know, pre-Tinder, if you had, you know, asked an industry expert like me, oh, could you have a dating app um, that required Facebook off? I would have said, and everyone would have said, no way, right? People want to keep their dating lives off mm. Facebook. In fact, every dating product prior to Tinder had usernames, and virtually every product after Tinder doesn't, mm. right? Which is just an interesting... So, so. You can see that they really game-changed that. Um, when you see someone on Tinder, they're Micah, they're Sam. Um, when you see someone on OkCupid, they're Soccer Guy 42 you know, and I think that authenticity made it real, um, and I think that was a big deal that not everyone, I think, is fully appreciated. And then the after effect, I think, of those two things is um, because it was mobile and because... Um, you know, because it was so light, the, the communication became real time. And if you think about pre-Tinder um, on a dating product, I would send you a message on a Sunday, you'd write me back on a Monday, I'd write you back on a Tuesday. And that was, a, that was kind of the cadence. And that leads to a bunch of things. On Tinder, it's, oh, you, you, you get a match, you're put right into a message flow, I send the message, and now we're essentially in an IM um, or, or, or texts, and, and it really becomes, it feels so fast, and when you see the person is, you know, when you're in that conversation, your heart starts to race a little bit, and it was able, so I think there's a lot of things other than, yes, the swipe, um, of course, it empowers, uh, puts women in control, because they're only messaging people that they have swiped right on, so there's a number of, it's, it's hard, you know, and, and Sean and I, who, uh, who, we have a great relationship, uh, and a real friendship now, um, you know, we'd still debate over what was it that made hmm. Tinder great. And I think everyone has their own opinion. There's no you know, at first we tried to convince each other, then I we were like, we don't need to agree. We can have our own reasons for believing why Tinder is amazing. Um but I think there are a lot of subtle nuances about sort of just those those dynamics that maybe aren't as apparent to a consumer who aren't sort of thinking about it in relation to other dating products.
0: But it sounds like it took a Sean into your comments earlier about putting yourself in a position to be at the right time, you know, to be lucky to be at the right sure. time, his insights and instincts on how consumers want particularly young, you know, yep. wanted to, you know, operate that almost feels like moving from email to text and slack and, and dating had to go through its own online dating, had to go through its own evolution. That's right. And, and um, yeah, and, and Sean certainly had, you know, his finger on that pulse uh, from the beginning. And yet at the same time, or, or pretty recently you paid, I think it was half a billion dollars Really, an old old school compa- a company. Company had been around for a while. Plenty of fish. Um, how did that fit in? You know, where did what? What was sort of the missing piece that you wanted to you know acquire there? Was that a part of the IPO strategy? Tell us a little more about that acquisition.
1: Yeah, so we acquired a business called Plenty of Fish, um, a, a Canadian business based in Vancouver, um, uh, run by a sole founder named Marcus Friend, who. Started his company about the same time uh, that we started OkCupid, so we sort of were contemporaries and have followed each other really for the last twelve years or so. Um, you know, we uh, we're we're always interested in dating products that work, um, that lots of people use, that operate at scale, and um, and plenty of fish you know you you said it's been around for a long time and you know part of the benefit of that is um while it may not be sort of the newest and slickest sexiest tinder like product um it has a track record and it has a huge user base and um you know we have become really good at monetizing what people previously called free products although now there's you know think really all dating products are freemium to some degree there's some stuff you can do for free there's some stuff you have to pay for um, and when we looked at it, we said, look, this is a this is a, a, a massive user base um, in that that had been free, that is free, and that you know we thought we could bring to bear um, a real understanding on how to monetize that that product. And you know, when you've got a sole founder who's got a business of that magnitude, it's really just a matter of timing and relationships. And um, you know Marcus and I have you know come to really respect each other um, through competition and then ultimately through you know sort of the deal process. Um, and you know, it some it was the time was right for him and um, the time was right for us and so it was it was actually uh, f- given given the size of the transaction you'd think it was a negotiation that lasted you know days and weeks and months and actually it was done quite quickly uh, because we knew each other we knew you know and we had a trust and a and a background together so we were able to get the the, the deal done actually you know really really quickly. So given your uh,
0: Chicago roots and I know you and your family live there, yep. um, I see a match based here. Any secrets on um, kind of managing a company remotely? And uh, I'm sure there's a lot of a lot of airplane time. But
1: yeah, I'd say um, I think the the first thing is um, you've got to be willing to you've got to be willing to travel. Uh, I travel every week. Um, I am uh, uh, yeah. I, I'm 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 a road warrior. I, I handle travel well. Just you know, some people just don't travel well, and I, I happen to travel well. That's just I guess good luck. Number one. Number two. I think it would be a lot harder if we only had one office, um, but it turns out that we have a dozen offices around the world. So our headquarters is actually Dallas, um, and so l- let's say I lived in Dallas, I would still sp- the OkCupid office is in New York, the Tinder office is uh, in LA. Uh, we just acquired the business in Vancouver, so even if I was based in Dallas, I'd be on the road half the time um, to go to these other places and 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 be there. We have an office in Paris and Rio and Tokyo, so. I think no matter what the CEO of this business is likely to be, you know, um, not in, not at headquarters every day. So that's, um, that's number two. And then number three is, um, we've invested a ton in video, in video conferencing. And, um, you know, I, when I first got there, I was like, well, why not just use Skype, whatever, or Google Hangouts, who cares? Um, I just can't stress enough the, the, the high def audio, the high def video, being able to like hear the nuance in someone's voice being able to you know see um what's going on and you know i can't remember the last time i had a a, a call with somebody i work with like literally can't remember uh because it's just all done over video and um uh have you tried high uh, five i know i haven't uh, it's
0: a portfolio company so this is a uh, shameless plug no, but uh if apple were ever to design a video conference system this i think would be it so i'll, oh, great. I'll send you info about uh, it uh, we use it here in the office. So, uh, you know, um, outside of, uh, your professional job, I know you help entrepreneurs. You've been involved in, uh, accelerate and tech stars. Yeah. And, um, I imagine a lot of folks come to you also with dating ideas. Um, and I don't know if you listened to the second season of Gimlet's podcast, um, uh, but it was a dating company at YC. Yeah. I, I've, I've been meaning to, I've been meaning to catch up on that, but uh, I, I imagine you're a bit busy, but, um, what advice do you give? Let me ask it both specifically, You know, founders that are wanting to get in the dating scene uh, or, or create a dating company, and more generally just founders who want to do a startup. What, what's kind of the wisdom you share?
1: I think for dating, um, I think I, I usually focus on two things. Uh, number one, if you take the, the, the acquisition that we just did aside, which was $575 million, prior to that, there had never been a $100 million exit in the category. So I just ask people, to just when you think about capitalizing your business, you have to you have to you know position yourself for that fifty million dollar exit, that fifty to hundred million dollar exit, which means raise the money and you know be, be capital efficient and and just leave that optionality open. Um, you get too many businesses who raise twenty million bucks um, on some on some good numbers and then you realize oh I would have to be way bigger than OkCupid um to be worth this amount of money you know t- to be able to exit at a at a, at a number that works for everybody so that's the first thing the second thing is don't get overly focused on the user experience or the product I- i've seen a thousand good dating products you get one match a day at noon you get you know propose you know offline date ideas that's all awesome but you need liquidity You need liquidity. Whenever someone talks to me about, hey, check out this dating app, I say, great, tell me when you have 100,000 users. Because until then, it it just doesn't matter. It is a numbers game. It just doesn't
0: matter. It's a market. And then in general, I've I've got just a zillion, you know. uh, What's your favorite piece of advice to give founders?
1: Um, Come to
0: you early stage, like, Sam, you've done it
1: several times over. Um, Uh, You know, the one that's very top of mind right now, because... I'm seeing it play out in a business that I, that I'm involved in is, um, I think people screw up their board composition mm-hmm. all the time. I think people don't realize, um, that who's on your board really, really matters. Um, I, I, I just had a CEO get fired by their board and I was like, well, why didn't you put these people on your board? And they're like, well, industry expert or, well... And just bad, all bad reasons. Put your mom on your board. You know, <laughs> like honestly, don't get yourself fired. Um, and at some point, you you know, of course, if you have investors, they're gonna you know, you probably gonna give them a board seat at some point. But you know, the actual human matters. The human who's gonna you, you have to trust them. This is this is hiring a boss. I don't think people ever think about the board as their boss. So that's probably not the number one piece of advice I would give, but that happens to be very top of mind um, because of a situation but, I'm dealing with right now. You know,
0: it's interesting you say this because I— Because I like, you disagree. No, no, no. I, I mean, I think like you, I have enormous empathy for founders and, and probably willing to um, let more slide than your average investor who's been a career investor. Yeah. Um, but now having sat on this side for a couple years, I— also understand why boards sometimes are motivated to make changes or don't see the world exactly as their founder or CEO does. I'm curious if you've had, you know, as you've gone through your career and gotten more involved in advising and I'm sure boards and investing um, in some ways, do you see things from two sides in a way you maybe didn't before?
1: No question. Um, I think I have become both a better operator and a better investor for having been on having been on both sides, Um, you know, in. And and I have another board that I'm on um, where you know we we're having very open conversations with the CEO about you know do you think you're the one who can take this thing to 10x of what it is today and and you know one of the reasons I backed the CEO is because he said probably not and at the right time I'm you know he's totally game for bringing someone in and so you know. When I'm advising the entrepreneur, I'm just saying you want to be in the driver's seat in that conversation, right? You want to, you want to, you want to be able to have, not leverage so much in the traditional sense of like, you know, uh, creating conflict, but just being able to say like, on my terms, and I want to have, I want to be able to influence the process, and you know, if if you don't have control of your board. Then of course, if you have good investors, they're going to respect you. They're going to bring you into the conversation, but ultimately, you go into the conversation not really being able to, to stop what they want to do, um, and that can just be a tough situation. Well, you know, what's your take on love in the age of Snapchat?
0: Um, you know, there, Snapchat has has also evolved the way people communicate. Uh, the ephemeral message, um, you know, short form. Uh, they're doing a lot of cute things with. Um, you know uh, different memes and things you can do uh, when you're communicating. Is that changing the way things are going to go? Um, how is computing, you know, and other technology going to transform courtship in the next ten years? When you look ahead at that level, what do you, what do you think?
1: I think mobile is going to be the biggest thing uh, that impacts how we date. Um, I think if you think about it, um, dating. You know, maybe not the most, but more than most categories or products, um, because the whole point of a dating product is to bring two people to the same place at the same time. It is inherently mobile. Yeah, if you get a news app, yeah, it's great that I have news on my phone, but there's nothing inherently mobile about news, for example. Dating is the opposite. Like if I, if you tell me that right now, you know, there's someone you know near me who is available to chat or, or to meet, that's hugely valuable. Right. And so, and, and that's, I think, what Tinder has really started to unlock a little bit, which is sort of that real time piece. But what I don't think anyone has really started to nail is, um, or has really nailed is um, the data that mobile provides can start to feed back into the algorithms. For example, uh, on OKCupid, we don't really we consider our, our algorithms are designed to optimize for on. For in-app communication, because we don't know what happens when our users, like once they exchange phone numbers or or Snapchats or whatever, we lose them and we don't know what happens to them. Imagine you know down the road once we're once we actually you know are, are tracking this stuff. Oh, these two people who are interacting on the app, their apps are now next to each other for an hour. Oh, that's a date, right? Now we can put that back into the algorithm and we can make the algorithms better because now we're optimizing for dates. So that's an example of how i think just the data generated by mobile can start to really lead us to better dating products um you know in terms of the the communication i think um that that, that you referenced i think in general more frequent communication is good um whether it's text or, or or ephemeral stuff like snapchat um you know once you're in a relationship one of the things that that is important is being able to just constantly stay in tune with people to be on the same wavelength to know how your day is going um and I think that can be really helpful. I mean, gone are the days. I mean, you know, when you know, I think back to like my parents, they would say goodbye in the morning and then they probably, you know, they come home and they're like, hey, and they haven't seen each other. And, you know, I think about with my wife, you know, we've emailed, texted, you know. You know what's going on. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're at least in touch on the big things throughout the day. And I think that's just a different dynamic and um, it probably ends up to people feeling more connected uh, and in, and improves relationships.
0: Um, when you look at it, uh, companies that have been recently created. You know, there's hundreds hundred some odd unicorns, I think quite a bit it's more crazy. at this point. Um, but any, any company or companies that you just totally admire um, and you just look to maybe as a source of inspiration or at least just admiration um as you were talking i was thinking a bit about airbnb because there there actually are a fair bit of analogies with the kind of offline experience you know of actually going to the house and having and and in the end that's very much how you're going to evaluate whether you were happy or not with the you know the sort of online to offline thing um uber a lot of companies doing really interesting stuff i don't know just any company that really
1: you think about a bit you know i i I tend to look at sort of the specific sort of For example, with Airbnb, uh, sure, the whole business is great. I love how they've handled um, identity and reputation, right? I love how they've said, here are different ways to verify. Oh, they verified with their phone, they verified with LinkedIn. And and this idea of sort of having scaled, uh, reputation or skilled, uh, authentication, I think is interesting. Um, and has really gotten me thinking differently about dating because dating has that in that, has that same dynamic of saying, okay, well, how do you prove who you are? And Tinder's taken the first step with Facebook auth, but even then, you know, that, that's not the, that's not the end game. So that I, I look for little points of inspiration and I try to encourage my team, um, you know, whether it's competitively in the industry or just sort of in technology broadly, like when you when you're using a product, you, you should always be filtering and thinking like, how can this apply? Any maybe it's an onboarding flow, maybe it's a you know maybe it's an, you know something like I was saying at Airbnb, but how can we adapt that to our business? Um, I look, I think outside just in the world, um, you know, I'm a huge believer uh, that um, uh, you know driverless cars are going to be the next sort of thing that um, you know it's going to be like as big as the internet or as big as mobile itself. I think it's going to change the way we live. We could use them on the Edens Expressway because that yeah, traffic yeah. Oh, is pretty yeah. ridiculous. It, it's gonna it's gonna <laughs> change where people live and where people work and all kinds of things. And so, um, you know, as an investor though, I haven't quite figured out like, oh, well, if you're not gonna invest in the cars or the OS or the sensors, you know, what business do you build around that? So, I, so I, I, I don't th- I don't have any investments sort of in that. But I'm super interested in that. Um, my two co-founders from OKCupid have started a company called Keybase um, in the sort of encryption security space. That's super super interesting um shameless plug for my friends um so you know really and then you know mobile on demand stuff um i'm involved in a couple i'm on the board of a company called spot hero that does mobile mm-hmm. on demand parking and shift gig that does mobile on demand um uh, shift workers uh, both super interesting to me um so lot, lots of stuff i mean it, it's certainly not getting less interesting out there as as you well know Sam, so you've acquired uh, a
0: bunch of companies in your experience. Um, entrepreneurs come to us as investors, I'm sure, come to you looking for advice uh, on how to position themselves and sell and go through that process with buyers. What advice do you give a company that, that wants to enter an M&A process or
1: put themselves out there for sale? It's a great question, and it's uh, obviously very idiosyncratic. Uh, you know, Each situation is different. Um, I think the first thing I would say just in general an acquisition is a big deal for a, for a company. Even a small acquisition is a big deal. Um, the amount of work, uh, whether it's from accounting, legal, um, yeah, you, ha- you have to have an internal sponsor. All these kinds of things. And so I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs have this idea that oh, I can always get, I can always sell this thing for five million or whatever. Um, and I just, I, I like to just really remind you that, um, you know, in our case, like w- we only want to buy things kind of, if there are a lot of money, because then it's impactful to our business. Like buying a million dollar company for a million bucks is kind of a drag. So that's just sort of a starting point. Um, okay. A couple pieces of advice. Number one, build relationships with the people you're selling to. I I got to know the executive team at match long before I wanted to sell to them because I knew that, um, they were our likely buyer. And so I was building relationships with them at conferences and, and whatever, um, long before, Ultimately, if you're going to give someone a big check, um, you have to trust them. You're probably going to want them to join your team, and it's a relationship. So don't forget that part. Um, Number two, um, if you're when you're going to, it's not unlike when you're raising money. If you want to get the best terms, you have to have another bidder. Um, It's the only way to, you know, um, it's the way to extract the most value. It's the way to get urgency uh, as a as a buyer. I'll usually just say, okay, well, yeah, we'll get around to it. Like, what's the urgency on my end? Um, and the urgency is, oh, we're going to sell it to someone else. So I think that's a really, um, that's a really important thing. Um, and then number three um, is, I think, you know, deal structure uh, can matter, uh, can really can really drive a lot of success. Um, obviously, if you can get someone to write you, just a big check up front, awesome, you go for it. Um, but I think, we were able, like when we sold OkCupid, we were able to get, I think, maximum value for it because we were so flexible in how we were willing to structure the deal. Um, and we listened carefully to what the buyer was saying. And in fact, through the course of our negotiation, what the buyer uh, matched, actually changed the structure. Th- as they got to know us better, they realized, okay, um, we're willing to take more risk uh, on, the, on the upfront part of the deal, less on the backside, et cetera. Uh, but... You know, you've got to bring real thought to, that, to the table. Be part of the brainstorming. Come and have active dialogue with them instead of just say, okay, give us an offer. Um, listen carefully to what they want um, and how to structure things in ways that, that will work. Um, I think that's, those are just a few things that, that have worked for me both on the buy and the sell side. So when I come to you with
0: uh, one of our startups that we're going to try to sell to match or I see I will remember those things remember those and things. use them to any uh,
1: anytime. Go for it.
0: <laughs> Sam, really appreciate you coming on. I mean, hours after you press the button yeah. to ring the uh, NASDAQ bell, uh, it's a real honor to see you. And uh, I think this this wisdom will be uh, you know, quite valuable to the entrepreneurs out there. So thank you.
1: Thanks for having me, Micah.
0: And if you have a startup idea and want to give the process a shot, reach out to us at info at foundercollective.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at at F Collective, or me at Micah J1, M-I-C-A-H-J-A-Y-1. This episode was produced by Joe Mancuso and Joe Flaherty, and it was recorded with love in New York City. Here's a clip from the next episode.
1: And then he said I was the new mother effing Pee Wee Herman. And like no one's ever given me a better compliment than that. He's like...